BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. This episode of the EdTech Podcast is sponsored by FormAssembly, a leading web form builder and data collection platform for colleges and universities. With its drag-and-drop interface, robust integrations and high standards of security and compliance, FormAssembly helps hundreds of customers in the higher education industry streamline data collection processes for students, staff and alumni. For more information about FormAssembly, visit formassembly.com forward slash edtech. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. Wherever you are in the world and whatever your situation right now, uh, we are thinking of you and thank you so much for listening in. This week, we return to the topic of future tech and trends in education. In our previous episode on the subject about a year ago, there was much shared on the topics of purpose-driven education, data analytics and ethics, interdisciplinarity and the importance of co-creation with educators and learners. This time around, the world has changed significantly. And if there is one big consensus point across all of our guests, that is collaboration, emotional learning and motivation and how all of these things interact. So my point is that everybody speaks about individual instruction. We should not lose the social aspects of education. I mean, it's not only that we learn to become social beings by being with other people, but it's also that knowledge is intrinsically social. And we, we need to develop models where we better combine individual adaptation and social interaction. Yeah, no, I, I think it makes sense, right? I mean, and, and ideally, you know, I think people think of technology as sort of this, uh, this force of automation, um, but it can also be very much a force of, you know, of engagement. Or, or, um, and so, so ideally, you, you get a little bit of both, right? You automate the, the pieces that are easy to automate and that nobody likes anyway, and you, you, can, you can use um, uh, technology to facilitate, you know, human connection in a way that, that, that makes sense and enhances learning. It- so as an economist by training, it was it's interesting to see how an implicit assumption is made without people really uh, questioning that assumption is the whole notion of rationality. And is that our, our decisions are all based on rational decision-making. And we, I think we kid ourselves when we think of that. And when we really sit down and introspect, our decisions are based on, of course, the knowledge that we have, and it's important. I'm not sort of saying that we should just dump all the stuff that we have built over the years in terms of knowledge generation and knowledge acquisition. But at the end of the day, when decisions are made, the emotion plays a huge role in that. So that self-regulated learning uh, should focus on, on what you learn and how you learn, cognitive aspects, but also how to think of the learner's uh, learning process, which is metacognitive aspect, but also on how you motivate your own and peers' learning motivation as the, as the third area of self-regulation and how to regulate emotions and initiate more positive emotions in the learning process. And what the teachers often discovered was that uh, uh, 
uh, it's all good with cognitive and metacognitive aspects, but for some students, it's it's much more challenging to find motivation to learn and and also to uh, to have positive emotions in learning. With many of us experiencing the fallout of Zoom fatigue and poorly designed online learning, this episode provides hope that the next generation of ed tech and implementation will be all about more sophisticated ways of connecting, learning together and understanding our emotions and motivations better to develop new skills, better innovations and to ultimately make a positive impact as both learners and educationalists. A big shout out to BET for supporting this series, Form Assembly for supporting this episode, and to our fantastic guests from all around the world in Estonia, the UK, India, Switzerland and the US for their personal and professional insights on this topic. Now, this episode is all about future tech and trends, but sometimes in order to look forward, it helps to look back and remind ourselves about the honest intentions of technology and where we may have gone adrift so that we may write our course. Here's Professor Pierre Dillenburg taking this notion further and charging us to think more critically about the role of artificial intelligence in education. So I'm Professor of Learning Technology here at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. I started um, my career actually 40 years ago as an elementary school teacher in Brussels, then then went to do a master in education. During that master, I, I read books about AI, so I'm quite proud to say that my master thesis in '85 was about the application of machine learning to education. There were only three in the world. And then from there, I, I always remain between computer science and education. I did a PhD in AI in Lancaster, 12 years in the School of Education in Geneva, and now 18 years here at EPFL as a professor of learning technologies, as I mentioned. Uh, and since the 1st of January 21, I'm also Associate Vice President for Education here on campus. And did you mention that so you're one of only three people in the world who were doing a machine learning uh, masters at that time? Um, machine learning for education. It's not the same machine learning as today. It was it was symbolic AI, so it was beautiful, not ugly as today. <laughs> and uh, one of them, maybe you know, is Timoshi. He was the director of Open University and also vice chancellor of University of Edinburgh for a while. So he's a bit older than me. He was one of the three doing machine learning for education. And for those listening in, um, what's the sort of uh, situation in Switzerland at the moment, both regards to um, obviously the ongoing COVID pandemic, but also um, what the implications of that are for uh, teaching and learning as well? The situation is not good, as everywhere. So we have been uh, teaching online since March, but we were ready. You know, we were very advanced in we're kind of the MOOC leaders for a while with Delft in, in Europe. So we had this culture of digital education at EPFL. So we switched on March 15 or something. I had totally, of course, online. And that went pretty well in terms of how it works during the class. But, of course, our students are not feeling well after now almost 10 months of online teaching. Uh, our student union made a survey. 7,000 students reply in one weekend. And the radiography of the moral state was quite bad. They are exhausted. They are uh, depressed. They are uh, not doing very well. So we tried to adapt ourselves to this situation. 
not by lowering the level of requirements of the exam, but by making things more flexible. Like if you fail, you, you have one more chance to try and these kind of things. So that brings me on to my next question, which is um, that this podcast episode is about future tech and trends in education. So if I were to ask you to think about sort of top three trends, uh, you know, around the future of education, what would you dwell on and why would that be as well? Um, I would say proving the benefits of AI. So I don't know if I told you I have an open uh, space here for edtech startups, so startups doing ed- educational technology. Uh, in Switzerland, we have more than 80 who participate, so it's called the Swiss EdTech Collider. Everybody says it does AI, and everybody says it will have intelligent tutorial and so on and so on. Uh, for me, there is a bit of overstatement in the current discourse on AI education. Um, yes, we can do fantastic things on AI for adaptive instruction. This has been proven. I one of my startup to, that use AI to diagnose dysgraphia, so handwriting difficulties, top difficulties, uh, with, with machine learning, and we can do it in 20 seconds instead of 20 minutes for a human expert. So there are some benefits, but the benefits of AI are usually quite local. So first, first priority for me is to have clear specific benefits of AI in education, not a general blah, blah, that AI machine learning, okay, everybody mentioned that future of AI machine learning. No, I want clear demonstration of specific cases where uh, there is a proven added value. That's one tendency. So it may be coming back a little bit from from the current overselling of AI and being more serious about, you know, the AI is nothing. There is not one thing called AI. AI is a lot of different algorithms. And, okay, in my application, which algorithm do, you, do I use based on which data and what is the function of this algorithm in my system? So it's, it's let's say, Escaping the flashy discourse and being more rigorous and more specific about the role of AI and machine learning in education software. Second one? Second one. Let's go for second one. Yeah. Uh, a bit in the same direction. Everybody talks about individual instruction, personalizing education, and so on and so on. So I hear that all the time. There is no one-size-fits-all. Uh, we need to have education being adapted to the needs of every learner. Fine. I mean, this has always been the discourse. So, as I, as I said, I've been in the field for 40 years. It, you know, when I read my first papers in the beginning of the 80s, that was also the leitmotif of instructional technology, individual adaptation of instruction to the personal needs. Fine, fine. But, you know, at some point, there were more, and still in many places, there were more kids than computers in a room. So they tested these individual instruction programs, not with one kit, but with two kits per computer. So in principle, if you need to adapt to individual needs and you have two different kits in front of the computer, it should collapse, it should fail, it should be less effective. And they realized it was actually more effective because the, the benefits of arguing, explaining, disagreeing, and so on and so on in front of the computer was higher than the loss of uh, less personal individualization. So my point is that everybody speaks about individual instruction, 
we should not lose the social aspects of education. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not only that we learn to become social beings by being with other people, but it's also that knowledge is intrinsically social. You know, our knowledge, because our knowledge is based on language, and language is a social tool. So we should not, lo- when we talk about individual instruction, I'm fine with that. You should never lose sight that the social interaction is as important as the individual adaptation. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to develop models where we better combine individual adaptation and social interaction. That was my second point. I love that point. Um, yeah, and we can see the, the flaws of this sort of purely individualistic instruction currently, I think. So I love that point. Um, and then do you have a number three? One is all is physical technologies. We talk too much about virtual things. We are very physical. So um, all the things that combine the digital and the, and, and the physical, like augmented reality, mm. like tangible interfaces. And in the future, what is called high-flex high, high learning or hybrid learning. So we, we have now been through several months of online teaching, everybody miss presence, everybody miss contact, as soon as everybody will be vaccinated. We want to be back on the campus, we want to touch each other, we want this physical interaction. But at the same time, we learn a lot about some benefits of online instruction. And I have many colleagues who were totally against it. And now a few months later, I say, you know, Pierre, there was something interesting in this uh, online uh, Zoom-based uh, lecture. So I think one one future is a future where there is no this clear border between the physical and the digital, where we combine all the time physical and digital. This is not new. This is called uh, blended learning or hybrid education. But the platforms currently, if you take Zoom, Teams, uh, and so on, they are not really designed for this kind of mixed of presence and distance. In, In my... I was been teaching for a while with one third of the student in the class, two third online in Zoom. That was not trivial at all. And uh, so I think the third future for me is the emergence of basically Zoom is not an education platform. It works well. Mm. It has not been designed as an education platform. So I think the emergence of and and I see a few of them appearing now. The emergence of platforms specially designed for having a mix of interaction of some people in the room, some in the world, and so on and so on. That's probably the first. And this, this include augmented reality, this include maybe tangible interface where the people can manipulate something on the table, but this is captured by the system, and so on and so on. As an aside, I was intrigued to know who the third musketeer of early machine learning and education was. And after some investigation, it turns out his name was R. Kimball. Pierre never met him, but I'm including for any machine learning historians out there. And uh, Mr. Kimball, if you're listening in, um, we would love to hear from you. My conversation with Pierre really kicked off the first of many chats with guests where the driving hope for the future was one in which education technology tools are developed with more complex notions of personalised learning, often cited as the holy grail in education. Part of this is about motivation. 
If the tools for learning are better, how can we tap into our intrinsic motivations to aid learning and get the most out of them? I, I, I have said for several times that learning in schools could be twice as fast as it is often now. And, uh, and, 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 and what we need to do in order to make it happen is that we need to be open for the innovation. We need to be, uh, we need to trust uh, the, the digital learning environments and, and we, ha- we have to build a trust uh, towards the le- learning environments so that uh, the people, uh, including myself, uh, we are uh, open to provide data in order to get the benefits of the technology. Margus Pidast is the Professor of Educational Technology at the Institute of Education of the University of Tartu. He's responsible for researching about best application of edtech for learning and then imparting that knowledge to educators. Okay, I am Markus Pedastem, Professor of Education and Technology at the University of Tartu in Estonia. And I am leading here the Centre for Education and Technology. And I'm also the head of, of Pedagogicum of the University of Tartu, which is a consortium of, of all universities, faculties for coordinating teacher education at the university. And on the national level, I am leading the Council for Professions in Estonia, uh, Professions in Education. And for many years, I have been involved in several national and international research and development projects. Uh, Several of them have been focusing on uh, developing and testing use of technology in education. So that uh, I am am a researcher who is is applying this research in in academia and and teaching teachers. Uh, It's it's maybe good to know that Estonia is quite good in PISA results in all areas, mathematics, science and language so that we have somehow learned how to combine um, different learning methods, including education and technology enhanced learning methods in the past uh, to, to support learning. So second, maybe it's good to know that Estonia is also the number one country in means of digital readiness in Europe and also digital learning skills of, of people. And uh, uh, what is important here is that uh, I wouldn't say that it's it's a competition, but actually it's it's a responsibility to apply the conditions we have to study new methods and, and tools to provide good to all teachers and learners all over the world. Then what else has been um, a success story in Estonia is that uh, uh, at least 95% of Estonian schools are using e-tires uh, to support the learning process to communicate with uh, parents and, and, uh, and also with, with uh, uh, children in school. But, but actually those e-diaries are not any more diaries at all. They are not just diaries. These are currently advanced learning management systems where teachers, students, parents uh, can uh, communicate, but, but even complete different individual or even collaborative assignments. We have an e-school back uh, that could be connected to this and, and where there are uh, a lot of learning materials for active learning tasks following the national curriculum so that technology could actually uh, support active learning, not only passive learning and, and the information retrieval and so on. So uh, what else? Uh, I can say that um, according to our study run in 2016 already, we, we found uh, uh, that um, 97% of Estonian students have the possibility to use smartphones in education. 
But what was interesting, four years ago, we saw that um, uh, only about 50% used their smartphones for learning in science and math. That was the focus of our study. Uh, only uh, once in a month or even less, almost nothing. And, and definitely now, uh, due to the COVID-19, uh, maybe the situation has changed faster than, than it, it would have been otherwise. And, but, but it shows that we, we have many affordances. According to Gibson, the affordances initiate a range of action possibilities. But it's relational so that uh, something is provided to us by the environment, but how we decide to use the tools and whether uh, 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 this is this is up to us, and uh, and we have the devices, we have the internet, we have motivated teachers and learners, and and the next challenge is actually how. So that currently we are discovering the question how to make the use of technology much more successful, and, and therefore, for example, last thing I can mention here that. Uh, we, we do not know much in the world about learning in, in digital learning environments. We have a lot of studies, but, but it's, it's not enough. So that, that's why we started in Estonia in May 2020, uh, right after the start of the COVID, COVID period, a large-scale research project to, to discover the effect of using digital devices in, in applying different methods. And, and uh, the effect is measured on, on both cognitive and non-cognitive variables, including... Uh, the the mindset of people and 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 also the uh, attitudes towards use of uh, technology and and uh, and also um, uh, emotions and and anxiety in education that that are all important uh, elements in in supporting uh, effective education. Margus spoke to me about how we need to better understand the psychology behind our learning in order to get the most out of the tools available. In the first uh, weeks, when um, in March, we started with the distance education due to COVID-19, then we saw that the teachers often tried to copy and paste what they had done in uh, in regular situation, so that they divided the tasks for students and then expected to get uh, uh, answers um, or submitted assignments uh, to, to check and then uh, on what to give feedback. But... Uh, Many of the teachers learned very fast that they need to collaborate with different teachers in order to uh, not overload uh, the students and to have more meaningful tasks so that um, this um, situation really called the teachers to rethink their learning goals, their purpose they have in mind in long term in, in education. Is it just uh, qualification oriented or it is also related to subjectivization and, uh, and, uh, and socialization of, of, of students? And then what we also saw is that for teachers, it is very important um, and in the distance education situation, even more important, uh, some kind of structure some kind of system they could use in planning and monitoring and evaluating the success of the study process. And uh, of course, 
In distance uh, learning situation, uh, uh, the self-regulated learning skills became much more important for students, but also for, for, for teachers, we saw. And again, in this context, we saw that um, uh, if we analyze the situation uh, uh, from the point of view of different theories on self-regulated learning, then in this case, we can differentiate uh, a system of uh, of four different areas of self-regulated learning. So that self-regulated learning uh, should focus on, on what you learn and how you learn cognitive aspects, but also how to think of the learner's uh, learning process, which is metacognitive aspect, but also on how you motivate your own and peers' learning motivation as the, as the third area of self-regulation and how to regulate emotions and initiate more but positive emotions in the learning process. And what the teachers often discovered was that uh, uh, it's all good with cognitive and metacognitive aspects, but for some students, it's, it's much more challenging to find motivation to learn and, and also to, uh, to have positive emotions in learning because the positive emotions really lead towards uh, more successful learning. And from this point of view, what we also found is very important if we can, can somehow uh, uh, somehow analyze uh, uh, students' learning activities, collect data, collect data, digital traces about the digital learning process, for example, in order to build that kind of learner models that describe how the learners learn. And later we can uh, evaluate uh, what kind of learning patterns are actually successful. And from that uh, uh, work, we we have now um, uh, loved uh, to run um, uh, uh, research on open learner models so that we can actually make the learner models um, uh, open to the learners so that they can use this data to regulate their own learning process. And uh, and and finally, it's it's the next step towards uh, more personalized adaptive learning environments where artificial intelligence, virtual and augmented reality as powerful tools could play together uh, in, um, in, in achieving the, the goals we have. And, uh, and, and not only on individual level, but also on collaboration. Uh, so that we, we really saw that more successful are those teachers who learned how to um, uh, encourage uh, students uh, to uh, uh, collaborate in, the, in, uh, in, um, in learning, in completing different assignments, so that uh, uh, personalized collaborative learning is, is, uh, uh, is something that has been really uh, powerful and, and effective in, in the distance learning situation. Yeah, as I mentioned already, the idea of open learner models. So that often, what we what we have seen uh, in our literature review, uh, what we published uh, less than a year ago in in Journal of Com Computers and Education, is that um, we found that in online learning, uh, uh, most of the studies focusing on collaboration and and online learning in general nowadays uh, support uh, cognitive and metacognitive aspects of learning, but not so often emotions and motivation, and especially emotions. So that this is definitely a challenge for the future, so that we have to think how to, uh, um, to, how to find data about uh, the changes in emotions. For example, um, what, what is 
challenging bunch of studies is um, uh, uh, related to uh, biometric data, which is the future. Uh, we often use nowadays uh, smartwatches or something like this that is collecting uh, uh, continuously information about our, our heart rate or heart rate variability. That is one of the indications, uh, indicators of, uh, of uh, emotional arousal. In addition, of course, we need something else. Uh, we often use um, cameras in our uh, digitalized learning process. Uh, we are faced to the cameras, and actually this camera is, uh, is, is suitable for, uh, for uh, detecting the mood we have. Because, uh, let's say, the heart rate variability or some other measures could have information that, that, that now our emotions uh, uh, were stronger. But actually, this data doesn't say uh, if they were positive or negative. And of course, we would like to uh, empower the positive emotions. We don't want, would like to understand when the positive emotions are triggered and what is the trigger, actually. And, and therefore, we need that kind of uh, data uh, from, the, from the cameras as well. And, uh, and this automatic uh, analysis of, of, the, uh, of the face, uh, we could uh, uh, understand much more about the learning process. Of course, uh, there are challenges like all the privacy issues and, 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 and so on. Also, let's say uh, th these programs analyzing this data even do not have to save any video, they just collect uh, mathematical information about uh, your eyes, your lips, and so on, and, and, and the movements of them, and that's it. And, uh, and, and in the future, I, I'm sure we, we discover uh, how much uh, uh, faster we could be in learning. This point brings me on to our next guest, whose work is dedicated to social-emotional learning and how we can scale social-emotional learning through digital means. I'm Ananta Duryapa, the director of the Mahatma Gandhi Institute. Um, I'm an economist by training, actually, and spent a lot of my early days uh, working on mathematical models, economic models, uh, primarily linking... Um, economic systems with ecological systems, looking at sustainability. In terms of uh, professional training, I've started off uh, doing climate modeling, uh, then went on to teach and establish uh, a course in environmental economics and development economics at the National University of Singapore for a while, and then moved to the Netherlands to uh, oversee a huge project on capacity building on on environment and development economics, so also a lot of research and teaching, and then moved into policy where I took up uh, a position at the International Institute for Sustainable Development now in Canada, and then sort of started uh, getting uh, interested in work on poverty and its uh, links with environment, and especially with the Rio Summit in 1972, where the famous quote from Indira Gandhi, we sort of say poverty is the worst enemy of the environment. And, and I, uh, I had uh, issues with that statement and I thought it was too simplistic and actually did a lot of work on showing that actually the poor really don't have the resources to destroy the environment as we think they do. And then started working with the United Nations Environment Program in terms of helping them develop a program of work on the poverty environment uh, linkages. 
and and then uh, moved and went to Nairobi and uh, spent about four years with the, uh, I think they call themselves now the United Nations uh, uh, Environmental Organization. Um, and over there, I spent most of my time working on poverty issues uh, and trying to link it up with ecological systems and sustainability and had the uh, opportunity to be part of Kofi Annan's uh, uh, the Millennium Assessment, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which I think is one of the largest assessments bringing together about more than 1,500 scientists from across the world. And that got me interested in the science policy nexus. Um, and, and that's been where most of my work is after that, moving to the United Nations University in, uh, in Bonn, uh, continued working on social environmental issues, started getting into a little bit more of education. And that led me to the Gandhi Institute. Uh, a couple of things attracted me to this Gandhi Institute. One was, of course, the name Gandhi. And then the whole notion of education for sustainable development and, uh, um, and peace. And one of the things uh, that was really frustrating, uh, and that frustration was building up over time as I was moving from these various positions is that there wasn't any behavioral change that was happening. You know, to, today, we talk about climate change is getting up on the, on, the, on the political landscape. Well, it took a long time to get there, but yet we don't see the kind of behavioral change that we would like to see. And, and that led me into where I am right now on the social and emotional learning aspects. So uh, where much of the assumptions in economic models of rationality, decision-making basically don't stand and they don't work. Uh, it's a much more complex process that goes in, which involves emotions. Um, and, and so that so here I am at the Mahatma Gandhi Institute. Very, very early on, we, we took a survey among the youth um, I, I really seriously think that, you know, the, the change is going to come from the younger generation. Um, you know, old buggers like me are very difficult to change. Uh, but uh, with the younger, they, they're so, they're not, they're impatient for change. And if that impatience is directed in a positive way, we could see so much of uh, uh, behavioral change. And I think we are seeing that already across the world. Um, so, what we did very early on is reach out to the youth and we, we, we did a survey called Youth Speak. And uh, we, had, we got about 1,400. Now, that's not a big number considering the number of youth around the world, but uh, we had a good representation from many countries. So it wasn't just India or, or the region, but um, we had good representation from across uh, uh, from the regions around the world. And the one thing that we found that uh, there wasn't any difference between uh, a group which had uh, extensive uh, introduction to sustainability issues, education. So we sort of said, have you had a course or have you taken courses in education for sustainable development or in peace studies, uh, uh, global citizenship studies? And, and, and it was interesting how... And, and, uh, Roughly about a third of them said they had uh, quite a large exposure to that. Another third sort of had 
uh, some slight uh, exposure, and another third sort of said, no, we never had any of that. It, it was interesting how that ratios uh, fell naturally. Uh, you know, we didn't kind of choose accordingly. It just went randomly to 1,400 or whoever who participated. Now, what we found was that there wasn't really any difference in terms of perceptions and the terms of the way they looked at issues across three, these three different groups. So one comes to a conclusion that the, the, the way that we have been teaching education or sustainability and peace really has not had much of an impact. Uh, because those who were not exposed to it had, had the same kind of perceptions and attitudes as those who were. So it wasn't getting through. And, that, and so we sort of said, well, the, that means the present approach is not working. But the good news was that they, there was a natural level of empathy that was running across all of them. And this resonates very much with the science that is coming out. We sort of say that we humans are actually neurobiologically wired to be kind. Uh, we are born to be kind. It's just that the systems that we set ourselves oxymoronically tend to take us in the opposite direction. And that pushes us into stress and depression and stuff. So it's interesting how we call ourselves one of the most intelligent species have set up systems which go against our natural order. Uh, so when we saw this, then we sort of said, you know, maybe then we should be looking at uh, how we can train the brain, just as we train the brain for numeracy and literacy, for social and emotional competencies, uh, things like uh, empathy, things like emotion regulation, things like attention regulation, things like compassion, uh, perspective taking, uh, trying to understand the other. And there was ample science to support this. And I was really surprised why the education sector was not uh, taking this up. And most of this work was related so strongly to learning. Um, it makes learning, it has the potential to make learning fun. And I think that's one of the things that we should try to do. You know, the COVID has, uh, it was interesting when they did a survey with children, they all missed school. But the main reason they missed school was the socialization uh, factor with their friends. It wasn't about missing school because of the maths or the science or the, or the, or the subjects that they were. It's more about the socialization that they missed. We have to, that's good, but we also should sort of say they really miss the learning, learning for fun. And I think that's where our education systems have really lagged behind, just based on my own experience as well. So I think that's, that's where we really need to change. The challenge is to change an education system which has been around with us for 300 years or more, which had very different objectives. Um, and how to change such an uh, ingrained system is going to be the challenge. So, it, so as an economist by training, it was, it's interesting to see how an implicit assumption is made without people really uh, questioning that assumption. It's the whole notion of rationality. And is that our, our decisions, 
are all based on rational decision-making. And we, I think we kid ourselves when we think of that. And when we really sit down and introspect, our decisions are based on, of course, the knowledge that we have, and it's important. I'm not sort of saying that we should just dump all the stuff that we have built over the years in terms of knowledge generation and knowledge acquisition. But at the end of the day, when decisions are made, the emotion plays a huge role in that. And, and this is well documented. The good news is that those emotions can also be trained. But what we are saying here is not to, let's say the emotion of anger. The whole idea here is not to suppress anger. I think anger is good. It, it, it allows you to express yourself. But the whole idea here is to understand, recognize that emotion, understand that emotion, and then to do something about it and to do something positive about it. And I think that's something that is that should be included in our education systems. Because at the end of the day, our education systems are not just uh, factories to just uh, dump knowledge into uh, into our brains because we don't need that anymore. So I think it's more in terms of analysis, how to deconstruct arguments and reconstruct arguments, but in a, with an emotionally resilient mindset. And I think that's the challenge of the education for the future. It's not about just knowledge, but it's an analysis of knowledge and analysis of that with a resilient emotional mindset. Now, digital. Many people say, uh, you know, when we, when we developed our social emotional learning program, we called it SEL++. Uh, and the reason was we were sitting around with a bunch of uh, computer nerds and, and stuff. And, uh, and, and, you know, I did a lot of computing modeling and, and it kind of came out from C++. And then we said, oh, let's do SEL++. Now, what is the first plus? We, we, we feel that SEL, social emotional learning, shouldn't be done as a subject by itself, but it should be done through uh, existing issues. So the whole notion of, let's say, uh, racism. Systemic racism. What does that mean? So we use that as a topic, and and within that uh, topic, within that whole curriculum, we build in social emotional exercises. The whole notion of uh, reflection, the whole more notion of dialogue, the whole notion of perspective taking. Um, so we build it, and we also have attempted to do this even within mathematics and stuff. Now the next plus is doing it through digital. Um, to scale it up. And the reason we went digital for a number of reasons, one is, of course, scaling it up. And we, we are in a country like India, where there are about, what, 330 million students. Uh, that's the whole United States population. And, and try to do SEL face-to-face -face just doesn't work. So uh, what we, but what we have also found, and people like Richie Davidson and others have shown that it is as effective uh, if you design it properly with make, make, making sure that the design principles are uh, well followed, that SEL can be effectively trained through the digital uh, medium. Now, when I say digital, I want to make a distinction between ICT and digital pedagogy. Um, you know, even in an organization with like UNESCO, we still tend to use ICT. I think when we look at, especially with COVID experience from the COVID pandemic, 
ICT is just basically a, a, a transmission medium. I think the digital has an opportunity to be a transformative medium. And digital pedagogy uh, can be really, so when I talk about digital pedagogy, I'm thinking about it being immersive, so virtual reality. Uh, it can be interactive, well, through gaming, use of games. It could be uh, dialogic uh, because it allows a student in a small town in Ohio connect with a student from a small town in uh, Uttar Pradesh, in India. Language, well, language, we have that kind of technology now. So I, I feel that 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 digital medium will be able will be able to connect us among others who are so different from us, which we would never have uh, in our lifetime opportunities. Not everybody who could travel and spend their time in other cultures and societies, but the digital medium uh, allows us to, to transport us uh, directly to that. Of course, these intrinsic emotional systems and intrinsic motivators within us do not disappear when we reach adulthood. I spoke to Benoit Wurz, a partner at Bright Eye Ventures, on what the outlook is in the adult skills development space and how we're going to fund all of this development. So um, I'm a partner with, with Bright Eye. Bright Eye is uh, one of the leading ed tech focused venture funds uh, in Europe. Uh, we invest in early stage uh, companies that use technology to help people learn and grow uh, with a thesis that, that the European market is, is underserved in that respect. Um, and so most of the, the startups we invest in um, are in Europe, are based here, and we help them to expand both across Europe um, and North America. And occasionally we invest in um, companies that are based outside of, of Europe, but um, that have a, a, a strong market here. Um, my mom's a teacher, my dad's an investor, and so I've, I've sort of landed right, right in the middle. What companies might some of our listeners know about that you've invested in? Sure. So we're invested um, in the U.S. Uh, there's a company called Epic, um, which is a sort of online library um, for kids, which is distributed um, free in schools and, and parents um, pay to um, uh, subscribe to have access to those um, uh, those books at home. And that, that's uh, done quite well and it's, it's far along. Um, in Europe, we're invested in uh, a few companies. There's a company called uh, Ornicar, um, which is uh, uh, the leading uh, drivers education um, uh, marketplace company in in Europe um, with with a particularly strong presence in in France and, and recently launched in, in Spain um, and uh, uh, a company called Ironhack which actually just raised uh, and also raised yesterday which which um, is a, a technology uh, school uh, um, that gives people the training they need to access entry level jobs in web development UX UI data science and they have a presence. Um, across Europe, uh, Latin America, uh, as well as, uh, as a, a school in Miami. And so, so those are some of the schools. Uh, obviously, we're, we're invested in, in about uh, over 20 companies at this point. So in terms of what COVID has done, I mean, COVID's really uh, sort of exacerbated the gap between um, the way people are actually learning and where education dollars are being spent, right? Um, so, you know, Roughly, uh, according to to city uh, city hall and IQ study, roughly half of learning is happening um, uh, digitally, um, but ninety five percent plus of of learning um, dollars are being spent in in sort of analog ways, right? Um, and, or in traditional education. Um, and so, um, what happened um, during COVID was uh, um, all of a sudden 
um, you know, you, you 95% plus of, of, of students, both uh, K-12 and university students worldwide were impacted by COVID. Um, and all of them, um, to some extent, had access to traditional education uh, blocked. Um, and so, um, so, you know, the first thing that happened was there was a, a huge um, move towards kind of full stack online solutions for learning. Um, again, parents for their kids, um, adults for themselves, corporations for their employees, all of that, um, you know, uh, really blossomed. So Epic, this uh, online library um, for kids that I mentioned, you know, saw uh, uh, traffic uh, kind of double um, overnight. Um, and, and, you know, they were not alone. There was a, a lot of um, sort of um, uh, companies that, that provided for holistic educational solutions entirely online. Um, so a tremendous amount of, of increase um, uh, in, 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 in both interest and adoption. Um, and then, you know, the second category of, um, of kind of tools that, that really saw a major increase were um, tools for existing educational institutions to um, reach their students in a blended or wholly online fashion, right? So you could imagine all the schools and universities that all of a sudden um, couldn't provide education in the way that they had been, um, you know, looked for solutions, you know, which ranged from um, Google Classrooms, which, you know, already had a, a significant footprint in the space to uh, companies like Ala, which is one of the companies in our portfolio that, that allows uh, universities to offer a best-in-class um, learning experience, a blended learning experience um, to their students. And so, so, you know, which also saw a tremendous increase in both interest and adoption. So, so th those, I mean, that gives you a sense of, of kind of the types of tools that were, um, that were, that, you know, that really blossomed, I guess. Um, um, I think the, in terms of the types of skills, which I think is, is still playing out very much in real time, you know, anything because of the, you know, the, the economic impact has been so severe in, in you know, um, more traditional segments of the economy, there's been a tr tremendous um, boom in interest in um, anything that allows people to acquire innovation economy skills. Um, and so, you know, companies like Ironhack um, in our portfolio, which just announced a, a $20 million uh, raise uh, uh, this week, or companies like Multiverse, um, both of which, uh, which, which is a UK company that also just announced a big round this week, um, both of which are, are around giving people um, skills and access into the, the kind of innovation economy. Um, those types of companies are seeing are seeing both a lot of uh, traction among users and a lot of interest among investors. You'll see a lot of it, and I think a lot of the early interest um, will, or a lot of the early interest among investors will be in companies like like Multiverse, like Ironhack, which which um, allow people to enter into um, the more dynamic uh, seg segments of the economy. But I think you'll also see a lot of innovation interest and adoption among. Um, companies that um, uh, allow people to train for blue collar um, skills, but just in, in new ways. Um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think more broadly what's happening, I guess, um, in, the, in the medium term is that there's just a, a massive sort of unbundling of, of education. Um, um, and so, um, you know, you can think about like the different components of education as as uh, you know, a, a traditional uh, primary, secondary school university experience really combines four things. It combines sort of instruction, um, coaching, um, feedback, and community. Right, you're getting you're getting pieces of that. Um, and one of the more interesting things that's happening when you when you have um, new solutions um, like um, is that you can you can repackage those things um, and emphasize. You know, either uh, you know, emphasize purely instruction and and coaching, um, uh, or um, or uh, reduce the cost around certain aspects of that, um, so that so that the experience that you get is is both um, more relevant for the student, um, um, potentially 
shorter and cheaper, honestly, um, depending on on how, what what type of education you're looking for. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, more engaging and 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 has has a better outcome for them. Yeah, so I mean, the, the funding report itself is is really focused on on uh, where the dollars are going. Um, so so um, if you look at uh, venture capital um, as a whole, um, in in uh, the, the three major regions are kind of North America, uh, Europe, and and uh, uh, Asia, primarily China. Um, and so so um, historically, um, edtech ten years ago when I started investing in the space, it was it was very little. You know, as a percentage, it was it was really negligible of of um, uh, money was going into um, education technology. And, and the two big changes um, were um, one. Uh, there was a, a massive increase in digital penetration in schools, um, uh, which which meant that um, all of a sudden you could distribute um, education technology into schools, and and that happened uh, first in the U.S. and then and then uh, later in Europe, um, and and so in the U.S., for example, it went from twenty percent of classrooms to ninety eight percent of classrooms having broadband access. I mean, you could sell software into schools in a much more consistent and scalable way, and so a, a lot of the early investment in tech was actually around um, software for for K twelve. Um, the bigger change, honestly, over time was was um, was the uh, uh, increase in willingness to pay for educational for new educational experiences, particularly educational experiences that touch on um, innovation economy skills. So parents' willingness to pay for um, you know coding uh, for their kids, adults' willingness to pay for um, all kinds of training that that um, allow them to access um, uh, the increasingly dynamic innovation economy um, uh, increased, and and even corporations' willingness to pay their their employees um, um, uh, willingness to pay for training for their employees also increased, and so. So that honestly is, is the bigger um, and and um, a trend that that exists again um, across all of these markets. Um, and so, in terms of where the dollars are flowing, so in um, in the U.S., um, there's approximately two billion dollars um, uh, invested last year in 2020 um, in, in ed tech startups. In um, Europe, it was about uh, 700 million, um, and in, in Europe, it was about uh, uh, seven billion. Right. So so um, an order of magnitude um, difference. Um, and I think. Um, when you look at it, um, you know it, it, it would seem uh, that, that like there are big disparities. But actually, you know, the U.S. and 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 EU markets are are fairly similar. So about two percent of venture capital um, is invested was invested last year in, in education technology. Slightly less than two percent in the U.S. Slightly more than two percent in Europe. But but it's it's quite consistent. And if you look at it as, a, as a percentage of venture capital, um, the the real outlier is China. Where, for a number of reasons, which we can get, get into if you want, um, the, the market's a bit more dynamic, so a much higher proportion of venture capital is is being invested there. In terms of what we'll see going forward as well, do you see anything that is currently, you know, part of the ed tech sector that will sort of fall by the wayside? Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure that that I would, I would see anything fall by the wayside it, um, in the ed tech sector in particular. I mean, I could see. Um, I think that uh, traditional educational institutions um, that um, uh, look, I don't think K twelve is going to change too much. I, I guess I would say. I, I mean, I think I think you know, there, for reasons um, that have to do with education, but also um, just uh, community and social welfare. I think I think you you know um, having places where kids go a big chunk of the day where they are both um, uh, you know where they learn um, interact with peers. Um, and and um, also are honestly uh, have a child care, uh, you know, have, have people that are taking care of them that are not their parents is really important for society to function today. And so so in terms of, you know, what happens post pandemic, I would expect um, 
you know, K-12 to still be mostly offline. I would expect it to incorporate more um, digital tools um, and, the, and that the cost of acquisition, um, you know, uh, goes, uh, for, for of those tools goes down. Um, I think there will be more disruption changes um, for, you know, kind of lifelong learning and higher education. Um, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of pressure for um, lower performing um, universities. Um, uh, and and um, and so I think um, I think what will happen there is that, that there will be more pressure on those universities to to a um, uh, deliver uh, content that's that's professionally relevant and and b actually move students, you know, actually pay attention to whether their students are are engaged in learning um, and and universities that can't deliver that will um, find themselves, will find it harder and harder to recruit students. Um, I will say that, that you know, the, this idea of, of kind of the unbundling of, of schools, um, you know, comes from talking to entrepreneurs who are in, in the process of doing that. Um, one, of the, one of the, I mean, one of the, I guess, trends that, that um, I'm most interested in is um, the use of, uh, or, or the, the rise of kind of communities of learning. Uh, if you think about education and, and how you can move the needle on education, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can reduce, reduce the cost, you can increase the efficiency, so like the amount of learning that happens per hour. Um, uh, you can increase the relevance, so how relevant you know you're spending the, the, the content that you're spending that hour um, uh, uh, is um, to your to your learning goals. But I think I think actually um, the most the, the most powerful way to to, to change um, the way people learn is to to boost motivation, right? Because there's almost Honestly, with with enough hours spent, there's almost nothing you can't learn. And the really hard part about learning is is just getting yourself to spend the hours required, right? Um, and so, one of the most natural motivations um, that people have is is really interacting with one another, right? Um, and so, so um, you know, uh, products um, and uh, and sort of educational institutions that leverage that as a natural um, uh, that, that natural behavior um, to enhance um, learning, I think, um, will do quite well. Um, and there's a whole bunch of sort of excitement about um, communities happening in the startup space anyway. You know, you can look at the rise of Clubhouse and other um, platforms that are more um, general platforms or Ubo for that matter in Europe, um, which are more general platforms for connecting people. But I think um, um, connecting people with the sp who have um, similar learning goals with a specific goal of having them kind of mutually encourage each other um, to learn is really interesting. So, for example, there's a company called Tandem in our portfolio, which is a peer-to-peer um, language um, platform. So you can, you know, if, if you speak English and um, you want to learn French and somebody else is a native French speaker, um, you can um, sort of connect with one another and then just um, practice uh, speaking and, and correcting one another's um, uh, speech. Um, and I think um, they've, they, you know, it's it's a quite active um, platform with millions of users. And and so um, being able to create communities of people who can, you know, who are interested in learning um, from one another, I think is, is is something that we'll see more of. As Ben mentioned, much of this new edtech investment is skewed towards China and the US. Here to impart his knowledge on both is Lance Huang, Education Lead at Agora. So uh, I'm Lance Huang. I'm the Education Lead at Agora. So Agora is a public company, dual headquarters in both Shanghai and also here in California, uh, with a market cap of around $4 billion USD. And basically, the company provides SDKs, or in other words, building blocks to developers so they can embed interactive videos and audios in their application. And in education space, we empower almost every like use case of virtual schooling, including one-on-one -on -one private learning, small groups, lecture hall, or, or hybrid learning. Uh, one of my major responsibility is to make sure that attack companies have all the toolkits they need to launch large-scale live virtual classes. 
And before joining Agora, I was the investment manager at Tel Education Group, which is also another public company, uh, one of the largest. Uh, if we we see the uh, if we compare market cap, uh, the company provides after school tutoring services to K twelve students. So my job back then was to source and also evaluate uh, some of the strategic investment deals in the U.S. market. So I'm blessed with a visibility uh, into education landscape in both U.S. and China market. So I think uh, if we compare some of the public companies or emerging unicorns between the two spaces, we can already feel the difference. For example, like if we see Chinese companies, public companies, we've seen、uh, Tel Education Group, New Oriental. We've seen in the private market、uh, some of the unicorns like VIP Kid. They majority of these guys are, or their major product offerings are tailored to K twelve students, and they're providing after school tutoring. Well, in the U S, we see、uh, public companies, the top ones, the largest ones. We will see like higher education or vocational training providers, for example, like Chag,、uh, or Two U that I just mentioned, the higher、uh, education like Laureate.、Uh, Uh, higher education, like college、uh, school operators, we'll see a、uh, Grand Canyon strategic education. We'll see publishers like John Wiley's, right? So、uh, there's a reason behind why the landscape looks so different. Because, for example, in the U.S., so the issue is different. So the, we are experiencing a reform of higher education and also vocational training, and and the reason is that. People are starting to thinking whether a traditional like four year college degree is worth of the time and money, since especially American students are in huge amount of debt.、Uh, if they attend like four year college、uh, study, they will have like twenty thousand、uh, in debt for the student loan, and they they may not they are struggling to find a decent job after graduating to repay the student debt. So what we see in the market is、uh, some of the innovation or or startup is they're trying to make higher education more affordable, and they are creating a career pathway for the student, even if they didn't attend college or even they, if they job hot, right? So we've seen more of、uh, applications in this domain, and same for, for vocational training as well. So. Especially in、uh, during COVID, we've seen millions of people lost their job, right? So it's it's a pressing issue to rescale and upscale、uh, these people that really help them to to、uh, rebound and and to launch a career、uh, uh, back to back to normal. So so, but in in China, we've seen very booming business in terms of K twelve education, and the, the difference actually is in the culture. These Chinese parents often like save money for their kids' education, and actually a large portion of house、uh, income will be reserved or allocated to these purposes.、Uh, and and especially the Gaokao, the Chinese college entrance exam, is still although we have different we hear different voices nowadays, but、uh, it still plays a very important role in determining a student's academic. And career success. So, so the parents are, are trying to make sure that their children can have a better future 
by sending them to after-school tutoring services or providers, right? In, in, in China, because we have a, if you look at, it's a sheer volume of students, right? So we are facing fierce competition among each other. So after-school tutoring is sort of like, we've seen very high penetration in, in China and especially in rural areas during COVID-19 as well. Uh, so that students can get a, a quality education even after school to be equipped to, to attend these uh, high stake exams, right? So that's the like the basic difference uh, between like US and China because we have different culture and different focus. And uh, one, one interesting like trend or model that I see uh, in China, uh, that's that's kind of like leading the trend to to, to a global uh, uh, scope, is is one called dual teacher mode. So basically, the idea is uh, there will be one remote teacher, and he or she will be more experienced and knowledgeable, and there will be one like on-site uh, TAs or or, or or teachers to facilitate, for, for example, Q and A or to help manage the classroom, right? So these teachers, these uh, uh, TAs may not be that experienced. He or she can be the newbies to, to the teaching career. But these two like teachers will collaborate to handle the class, one remotely, one on site. And these actually solve the problem of scarcity of very experienced teachers. And this is a global issue, right? So it also improves the accessibility of knowledge, especially in rural areas. Right, so so uh, this is like a, a very innovative model we've seen widely adopted in some of the China uh, Chinese education, like uh, after school tuition providers. And actually, if we we take a step back and uh, look back and reflect on this uh, paradigm shift of online learning, we can identify some of the benefits of online learning too. Uh, for example, it saves commute times for, for students. Uh, it provides more flexibility in terms of scheduling with the tutors, and it brings down the cost of learning and also improves uh, accessibilities and offer a wide uh, variety of content a student can choose from, from this digital library, right? And one very famous uh, startup in the US is called Masterclass. Uh, so the idea, the business model is a student can only like need to spend fifteen dollar per month for for the subscription fee, and you can learn how to cook from from celebrities like Gordon Ramsay, how to play basketball from Stephen Curry, like do magic tricks from 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 Penn Teller, and how to act uh, from famous actors like uh, Natalie Portman, right? So all these are celebrities and industry experts that won't meet you in person and teach you, but but masterclass able you to learn online and adopt this uh, fascinating like knowledge or, or tricks. Right? So, so these are some of the trends I observed that have been accelerated during COVID-19. And last but not least, I think one of the uh, amazing trend is the development and also advancement of AI applications. And in, in China, I've already seen wide adoption of like AI technologies, like facial recognition and also emotional recognition. So especially it's useful in, in large classes. So the idea is that there will be an AI system 
that monitor the facial expression of each student and also inform the educator when a student is not paying enough attention, uh, get distracted or puzzled. So the teacher can respond in real time and instantly intervene. So to give uh, one student, specific student personalized guidance or structure. And another like uh, startup that I can see is pretty interesting uh, in the US is called TeachFX. So the idea is uh, uh, they market them themselves as uh, the Fitbit for, for teachers. So they have like this uh, AI powered uh, algorithm and also uh, natural language processing uh, engine that measures like how much student uh, or teacher talks during class, right? So uh, it can identify like uh, who who is who and who talks how, how long, right? So that makes sure that teacher is not the only one that speaks uh, in during a class. It makes sure there's no like sage on the stage uh, scenario. And it's a, really a tool to engage student interaction and also like <clears throat> engage them to, to participate in a class discussion. And you also like promote educational equity since uh, each student will have a chance to speak out no matter uh, of their race or, or, or gender. So they can also have an equal voiced uh, opportunities to shine during class. So uh, another very interesting like uh, uh, adoption or application is called adaptive learning. So uh, that means the system kind dynamically adjusts the content a student will see based on his or her response to previous questions. So the content will be always updated and also personalized to the specific student. And these have several like implications or, or benefits, right? So first of all, it creates an optimized learning path. So to maximize the learning efficiency, I think still uh, adaptive learning is in a relatively early stage compared to other like mature technologies out there. And what we've also seen is a discontinuity uh, in terms of hyper learning. So not all the content will be digitized and will be fit into the AI system. For example, something that happens offline uh, that the AI system won't be able to know, right? So that cannot help them to generate the best solution or content to the students. The technology is still developing and advancing. And I hope that the AI application can be more intelligent and will be a powerful tool to enable teachers to uh, better understand the st uh, status of students and also their learning progress. That nearly brings us to the end of this epic episode and hopefully some food for thought on what might be coming down the line. To summarise, it's personalisation, but not as we know it. So, what do you think about the use of biometrics and facial recognition in education? Is it a good thing or should we proceed with caution? And what does this caution look like? Does this say something about the realities of teaching in large groups? Or what else does this make you bring to mind? Send your thoughts in a 90-second uh, or less note to www.speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast and we'll include them in a future episode. Now, one final thing. Before we go, some ruminations on projects, people and book recommendations to keep you busy as if you weren't busy enough already. 
Uh, I suggest you to check the website of the Education Innovation. And Estonian Education Innovation website actually con uh, connects people from different areas. Uh, the startup people, but also the initiatives of the universities. Um, for example, I can just mention a few of our own projects. Uh, I also mentioned, already mentioned GoLab Environment, uh, NextLab, uh, Arc of Inquiry, Visual. Uh, uh, these are just a few examples uh, that have been very successful in uh, in in uh, uh, in introducing new technologies in in um, uh, in schools. And um, Estonia is a small country. That's that's also an, an advantage. So that uh, if we apply something, that then it's quite easy to apply it uh, all over the country. But, uh, of course, I recommend reading scientific articles for others as well, because uh, um, sometimes they are very good at finding new ideas for innovation. And, and I have, uh, uh, from, um, from recent collaboration with uh, uh, several start startup people, uh, good experience of how uh, motivated uh, startup people with their great ideas could become in collaboration with scientists. So that we have we have really found even the self-regulated learning idea. What we what we discussed here, we are now collaborating with a Lithuanian startup to create a new online tool to support uh, self-regulated learning through online learning environments. Uh, it's a bit degree is the company, but uh, what I'm reading, I'm I recommend reading Ernesto Panadero's articles on self-regulated learning or Gert Pista's views on agency and, and learning goals, or William Damon's studies on purpose and, uh, and our own work that can be found in Google Scholar, our study on inquiry-based learning published with open access in educational research review. And because, for example, this inquiry-based approach supports every one of us in orientation in every new challenge, in conceptualizations, in testing and analyzing different situations, in, in making conclusions and communicating them with others. So that I believe that uh, these scientific materials could really help us uh, in, um, in our everyday work. If I may be unfair, I will mention the one coming from the lab that I mentioned before, this, this graphia uh, thing, because I've seen these kids with severe handwriting difficulties. They are not even seven years old and they are already broken by school, by, by the school system. Yeah. So uh, not only we, we diagnose problems, but that's useless if you don't solve them. So we have uh, remediation games, not, 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 uh, it has to be games because these kids are already a bit afraid of school. But um, things like if you do the official measure of underwriting difficulties you you have one scale and you get a value on that scale but what we we found with machine learning is that two kids with exactly the same value on the scale may have two different causes two different difficulties behind the score some of them you know because we use a tablet so we can discriminate pen pressure pen tilt speed acceleration everything we can we can analyze the very low level, we 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 can discriminate. If if two kids have the same score, one because he has a problem of pen pressure, and one because he has a problem of pen tilt, we should not give them the same activities. We are back to individual processing. But here, 
it is performed at a very, very fine grain level, and uh, we can measure things that a human eye cannot measure. Like the, the software is called Dynamico, and the company is called School Rebound. Like, like you know, helping kids who are not doing well in school to rebound and to, to have a new start. There is something in Switzerland that is not well known in the rest of the world except in Germany and Austria. It's called a vocational education system. It's a dual vocational education system. So in Switzerland, when they are 16 years old or teenagers, two-thirds of them, they go and learn a job, including our president, including the CEO of UBS, the main bank, that's really in the Swiss DNA. It's a bit the same in Germany as well. And, um, and for these people, so they, they work four days per week, typically in a company in one day per week at school. So this education system, which is very effective, um, requires specific technology because of this uh, permanent flow of knowledge and experience between the school and the workplace. And there is a new, a new colleague who has been hired at EPFL, Professor Tanya Kayser, who is focusing on this kind of research. So I think it's very much, many countries have tried to import the Swiss system, the USA, France, and so on, uh, this dual system. France actually had such a dual system like 60 years ago. And uh, it's quite difficult to change it. This, their own education system based on this example, but through technology, I think I would in, invite uh, the people who look at your pod, podcast to, yeah, maybe to follow the work of, of Tanya, K, K, Tanya Kayser from, from EPFL. So this is a new field for me too. So I've spent about now six years now uh, teaching myself on this. The, the book that I found really useful you know, to get me going was uh, Daniel Goldman's book on emotional intelligence. And, and, and then Daniel has written something with Richie Davidson. Now, Richie is on, uh, on the governing board of the, of, uh, of the Institute called Altered Traits. You know, many people kind of dismiss meditation. They say, oh, this, you know, if you don't teach that in schools, you know, that's not what it's all about. And in this book, they talk about the science of meditation and its impact. On, on, on your well-being, mental health, especially on mental health. Because a, a 2015 WHO report, it sort of says mental health is the second largest killer and is going to be one of the biggest problems that modern society is going to face as it goes into the 21st century. Um, and we need to start uh, really paying attention to our mental health um, in terms of stress, anxiety, uncertainty. The, the other book that I found fascinating, which talks about why we are violent in what takes us to that level of violence that you see in humans, is a book by Robert Sapolsky uh, from Stanford. Uh, it's called Behave. And, and, you know, if you don't want to get involved and pull down with the, on the neurosciences of our behavioral uh, instincts, that's fine because you can skip and go down to the annex. But I really thought that book was uh, a fascinating read, um, which was by uh, Sapolsky. And 
the book that turned my whole understanding of rationality was Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Um, so he was more of a psychologist, uh, and and then Richie is more of the neurosciences. So they're connected. One explains the behavior. The other one t- t- tells you what happens in our brains to explain that behavior. So I, so I found these uh, uh, really inspiring. And then the, the work on social-emotional uh, Kimberly uh, uh, from UBC, uh, full name is Kimberly Seanad Rachel. I, I, I'm not sure if I pronounced her last name well. I can I always call her Kim, Kim because I mess up her last name all the time. Uh, from 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 uh, from UBC in Canada, she has done some really great work with schools in British Columbia, and in fact was instrumental in really institutionalizing social emotional learning within the education systems in uh, in uh, British Columbia. Uh, and so I think that's pretty much, and then of course His Holiness Dalai Lama. You know, who, who else is the ambassador for social emotional, the whole ambassador for our kindness? Uh, he's just, uh, especially his work on secular ethics. So it's it just cuts across. Uh, it's, it's religion agnostic. It's about humanity and the way that we behave within ourselves. I always use the, uh, the, the SEL framework we have designed our own at the Institute called EMC squared. It's a play of Einstein's equation, but towards what we call the K cube uh, endpoint, K kindness uh, to yourself, kindness to others and kindness to nature. Um, I think, uh, and, and, and the digital medium, uh, you know, we have to accept the fact that the younger generation just lives on the digital virtual world. And, uh, and, and that's where I think the frontier for social emotional learning to be shared. I think there's a, there's a very nice term that was uh, uh, coined by a professor from NYU uh, called the Amagadella hijack, where when you meet, you see, when you read or see something that you really don't like or you're adverse to, it doesn't. The, there's a short circuit in the brain that doesn't allow it to go through your rational thinking to the neocortex, where you use all your knowledge to decipher it. The 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 limbic region, which is the emotional region, hijacks it, and then you react immediately. Um, and I'm not sure about you, but there's been so many times when I reacted to emails and then regret it. Um, sort of saying, oh God. And then so so these days I just have uh, I have one called a three-day and a seven-day box. Uh, the ones which get me so emotionally distressed, I put it in a seven-day box. And the ones which get me slightly, I put it in a three-day box, and then I come back to it with a little bit more emotional uh, uh, balance to look at it and to respond to it. Saying that, I still get hijacked periodically, and then regret it all the time. That's all for this week. Some fantastic recommendations there. Thanks so much to all of our amazing guests and to the EdTech Podcast team for doing all the show note references and social media work this week whilst homeschooling and generally being brilliant in such difficult circumstances. 
For you listening, we hope that you are managing what impossible situation you may find yourself in. And we hope that the hands-free medium of listening into a podcast is our own little way of helping. Thanks again to Bet for supporting this series and Form Assembly for supporting this episode. Don't forget to check out our calendar for upcoming virtual events from the wider EdTech community. And don't forget that if you have a brilliant early stage innovation for skills development idea in the UK, UFI's seed round is now open. So go and check out their website for further information and to apply. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations from our guests, it's the edtechpodcast.com. And we always love to hear from you, um, including uh, some messages this week from uh, listeners who have jumped back into the EdTech podcast. So if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can always tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPod and Bet2021. That's all for now. Have a great week, everyone. Bye bye.